You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, Growing Disciple-Making Leaders. This is the second of three sermons from Psalm 103 on experiencing the love of God in leadership. The sermon was given at the Living Leadership Pastoral Refreshment Conference in January 2007. The preacher is Dave Burke from Bethany City Church in Sunderland. If you're ever seriously ill, take a tip from me. Don't touch the Psalms with a barge pole. Richard Crocker, chaplain of Dartmouth College in Connecticut, tried it, and in his wonderfully understated New England way, this is what he says. What I discovered in reading the Psalms straight through over more than 150 days was that a large number of Psalms that are liturgically useful in their entirety is small. Most of the Psalms contain verses that are so difficult that we routinely ignore them. In other words, the Psalms are not uniformly comforting. Indeed, most of them are problematic, even for a person determined to find comfort. Bono, lead singer of U2, gives a partial explanation for this in his introduction to the Psalms. David was forced into exile, he says, and ended up in some no-name border town facing the collapse of his ego and abandonment by God. But this is why the soap opera got interesting. This is why David was said to have composed his first psalm, a blues. That's what a lot of the psalms feel like to me, just like the blues. Man shouting at God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? The fact that the scriptures are brimful of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers and mercenaries, he goes on, used to shock me. Now it's a great source of comfort. Read a psalm through as though it were a theological essay to be interpreted with the same toolkit you would use to read, say, Paul's letters, and you'll be disappointed. This is the view of a professional poet, C.S. Lewis. Most emphatically, he writes, the psalms must be read as poems, as lyrics. With all the licenses and all the formalities, the hyperboles, the emotional, rather than logical connections, which are proper to poetry. They must be read as poems if they are to be understood. Otherwise we'll miss what's in them and think we see what's not there. Now this is important as we seek to suck the goodness out of the next section, which begins with David's revolutionary slogan in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Now because he loves us with a passion, God wants us to exhibit righteousness and to experience justice. But we live in a world that's so out of whack that we do not always receive or achieve the righteousness we long for or receive the justice we ought. Oh yeah, we will do. One day everyone will receive justice. But it doesn't always happen in the present, a bit like healing. The poor man who didn't, has just been released from prison, having served 14 years for a murder he didn't commit, will not get justice in this life. The cops who stitched him up will continue to insist he's guilty. The state will fight over every penny of compensation he's entitled to, and no one will go and see him to apologize for what's happened. David's resolutionary slogan, you see, isn't so much a general statement about universal justice, but it's a particular reference to God working justice for Israel. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. David isn't thinking about the population of South America. He's thinking about the history of his own people. Forget not all his benefits includes the benefit of belonging to a people with a unique history and a covenant relationship with God. 
Now this word righteousness is a rather special one. Like a good quality wine, it's a full-bodied word with beautiful undertones. To start with in scripture, it meant right behavior. That is, behavior that was like God. Now in spiritual terms, that's normality. Whatever ravages sin has created, that which is righteous is truly normal. So in Psalm 72, um, the first 14 verses, righteousness is described as the right functioning and the just ordering of society. Now naturally, the, health, the wealthy tend to win over the poor. The healthy tend to win over the unfit. So righteousness is going to have to guard the poor and the unfit in particular. You get an insight into that in Psalm 72. Later on in the Bible story, the 8th century prophets like Amos, Hosea, Isaiah and Micah, with their passion for the poor, used the word righteousness to express God's benevolence and salvation. In fact, whenever you see this word righteousness, it's usually in the context of God rescuing people from something, from unrighteousness and injustice. Within the Psalms then, around the 10th century BC, the comp composition of Psalm 103, this word probably had its earlier meaning. The Lord makes things work properly and justly. Righteousness. That was his intention in rescuing Israel and setting them up as a model nation. Now, whatever the Exodus meant in spiritual terms, it was nevertheless the actual liberation of actual slaves from an actual villain of the greatest magnitude. Whatever interest we have in spiritual salvation, which is of unimaginable importance, that also should be an act of interest in social justice, which is of uh, tremendous importance as well. But this should apply to pastors. You should be able to expect righteousness and justice in the church and its employment practices. A right functioning and just ordering of the church community is vital at this point. And I have two areas of concern here. One is church employment practices, which are often deeply deficient. Salaries are low, pensions are parsimonious, there's no structure for appraisal and formal evaluation of the ministry. And if there is, there's no structure for appraisal and formal evaluation of the way that the pastor is supported and the church is functioning in its duties to him. There is no staff training or development. I was in Specsavers the other week buying a pair of specs and there was a plaque on the wall proclaiming that Specsavers were investors in people. How many churches could claim to be investors in people? Now, when you are investing in people every day as a pastor or Christian worker, but nothing is being invested in you in return, that's injustice, that's unrighteousness. Things are not working properly. The second area is the area of criticism. I wonder how many people here have been confronted by the phrase, a lot of people have been saying dot, dot, dot. Now what that usually means is that your critic feels insecure giving you his opinion, so he invents a mythical cadre of malcontents to give his views some weight. But what if there is a bit of concern in the fellowship, and no one's going to share it with you personally? So people take it to the leaders. Even experienced leaderships, however, can overreact to this kind of thing, and sometimes the only appraisal a pastor receives is when he gets ambushed by the elders after they've received a complaint. 
Now, if you've been duffed up by your elders on Saturday, it's unlikely that you proclaim the joyful and confident gospel on a Sunday, is it? Now, when you're trying to lead with integrity, but others don't have the integrity to relate to you with fairness, that is injustice and unrighteousness. Things are not working properly. Last year, I was walking around a field near my house, turning over this psalm in my mind, reflecting on those phrases, the Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then it struck me, David is quoting from Exodus, almost word for word. This is Exodus 34, verse 6. God describing himself to Moses in circumstances that are, when you think about them, pretty amazing. Let's think about the backstory, the sequence of the Exodus events. Israel is rescued from slavery. They are taken across the Red Sea, miraculously rescued from the Egyptian army. They are led through the desert, miraculously. They are fed, they are watered, miraculously. They are given the law and invited into this covenant relationship with God. And they are so thankful to the Lord for his goodness to them, that they make a golden calf and bow down and worship it in the teeth of God's commandment forbidding idolatry. God is angry. Moses goes off it, smashing the stones that the law of God is written upon. That would have been a good moment for God to have ended the relationship, but he didn't. He started over again with Israel, gave them new stones with the law written on it, and as he does so, he says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. This really is a wonderful moment, and Psalm 103 is, if you like, David's commentary on Exodus 34. He's taking us back to the Exodus event and introducing us to the fact that God is way more gracious than we dare believe. Now, we need to know this. Inside every Christian, there's a Pharisee trying to get out. The legalist within longs to torture us or other people with our failures and shortcomings. Imagine this conversation. Read Exodus 34. There's no hope for you. Obey the law or you're doomed. Psalm 103 answers, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. But this is God's law, the Pharisee says. It's clear and simple. He blesses the obedient and curses the failures. That's you, you loser. Psalm 103 comes back. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or reward us according to our iniquities. Well, you should be afraid, says the teacher of the law. You've gone too far this time. You've failed too frequently and too often. And David replies, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. But sin is sin is sin is sin, sings the Pharisee. As far as the east is from the west, sings David in reply, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You are free from the law. You are living in God's fatherly grace. So let me put it this way. You don't have to succeed in ministry to earn his love. He loves you anyway. You may chose, choose never to go to church again. 
never to read your Bible again, never to pray again, never to preach again. His love for you will not diminish by one fraction of a nanometer. This is grace. And don't forget that his grace flows from his compassion. Compassion, raham, to love deeply and show mercy. There is a powerful emotional content to this word, compassion. It's not putting a check in the post out of pity or duty. It's the urgent phone call to your son who's in trouble. The late night drive to fetch him home from college. The long wait through the small hours while the doctors do their work. This is your God. And righteousness is to live by his norms. How do we apply this? How do we apply this to the way that we deal with those who sin against us? Now David himself had experienced the amazing grace of God in the Bathsheba affair. He's conscience stricken when he himself is convicted of sin. His contrition and his prayer of restoration are famous, Psalm 51. He knows he defended God, at least, and that he's doomed if God chooses not to be merciful. And he was merciful. He and Bathsheba lose the child. But other than that, things go on pretty much as normal. But what happens? What happens when David is sinned against? You get this in Psalm 109, the first 15 verses. An insight into David's real feelings towards those who made his life difficult. Appoint an evil man to oppose him, David prays. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May even his begging for mercy condemn him to deeper punishment. May his days be few, David writes. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. Now this passage is not uniformly comforting, is it? Neither is it particularly liturgically useful. But read Psalm 103, verses 8 to 10, against this background, and it says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his, harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Compare Psalm 109 with Psalm 103, and there you have it. The ugliness in the heart of the best of men, and the beauty in the heart of God. This is your God. And it's also your calling to be as gracious and as compassionate as he is. Now you have a right to expect justice and a proper ordering of the Christian community for whom you're working, but we don't always get justice in this life. He may not work righteousness and justice for you, not just yet. So what do you do in the meantime? In the meantime, you make the painful journey from Psalm 109 to Psalm 103. When you are compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, just as your God is. And that, that is righteousness. That's normality. Not Psalm 109, but Psalm 103. 
And maybe this is what it means to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Do you remember that old hymn? Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Bow down before him, his glory proclaim. With gold of obedience and incense of lowliness, kneel and adore him, the Lord is his name. Low at his feet lay thy burden of carefulness. High on his heart he will bear it for thee. Comfort thy sorrows and answer thy prayerfulness, guiding thy steps as may best for him be. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give, or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.